Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. If you're joining for the first time at this episode, um, jump back to the beginning if you need context. Otherwise, feel free to step into it's essentially the second half of my look at the Magic Valley. So in Twin Falls, Idaho, at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center is where I was born. On April 15th in 1974, um, a little before 1 p.m., we'll get into the astrology of that, I'm sure, at some point, but um, (laughs) I was then adopted before the sunset, so I was at my adoptive parents' apartment on Maurice Street um, later that day. So there was very little time between the time I was in the womb and I was with strangers I'd never met or heard their voices of before. Um, Anyway, as it was, um, even before I knew all of the facts that I've relayed up to this point, um, I started feeling really driven away from the Baptist church environment um, because of the inherent judgmentalism that seems like was suffused through my interactions with the church members, uh, the other kids, my peer groups, you know, like at a certain point after about eight, nine, 10, 11, you start listening to what you're hearing. I remember sitting at every sermon from the point I was about 10 on just doodling skulls on the church bulletin because I was so bored and it just felt so oppressive and death-like. Um, (laughs) it's very possible I was, uh, I will at times um, go down disassociative rabbit trails to avoid talking about things. Um, That's just natural. I'm an adoptee. It's possible I was sexually molested in a church when I was three or four years old. I feel like I remember the room in the church where I think it happened. Would that been at Tyler Street Baptist Church uh, in 70, 79, 78, I don't know. I think it was an older boy who did it to all the kids, like in the nursery area. I don't know if this was ever discussed or if it came out in the church. Uh, I was never told. I just remember thinking something weird and painful happened in that room, in that church. And Buried behind that strange, unsettling memory is desire to sort of like, like annihilate these spaces in my mind, right? Like, um, destroy the buildings mentally. I, I resist the desire to visit the street in person when I made plans to visit Twin Falls again because the memory is not fully present, but the echo of the memory like vibrates within my body. So again, trauma that happens at pre-verbal stages isn't easily discussed or addressed, and adoptee trauma often falls into that pre-verbal space. I know at least some of my trauma does. But, um, yeah, so the, uh, the grand title for this episode is Aviator Lane. I think about that a lot. Um, I said in the last episode a bit about this is, so once my schooling began, we had already moved out into this house at the south of town on Aviator Lane. It didn't used to have that name. I remember when we got the street sign, it was a present for my adoptive father, who was a pilot. Uh, an aircraft mechanic, he, he thought of himself, still does, I think, as a troubleshooter. He tries to predict and anticipate problems before they happen. Um, so she bought this, my, my adoptive mother, Karen, bought the sign for him as a gag. And years later, it appears as the official name on Google Maps for that house. So when we lived there, we had a name and a root number like the extent of instructions our postal delivery driver received. There was no street name. But um, the memories from the period that I lived at the Unruh residence on Route 2 in Twin Falls, uh, it was like, those are framed through this reflective knowledge. I wasn't constantly being told I was adopted by my parents, but the teachers and the principal of the Christian school I attended 
did, were well aware of it. It was reflected in the engagements I had with others. I was always talking about it with the other kids and peers, I feel like. It was, it was, a, it was a point of conversation. So now I find myself wondering which of my teachers at Twin Falls Christian Academy knew my biological family, because certainly my principal and his secretary were aware, and I feel like I remember a teacher commenting on Mrs. Harper when she approached me at a book fair after sixth grade, um, I suspect my first grade teacher knew, as I said previously in the last episode, and I was always in conflict with her for reasons I can't fully recall. So, you know, there's a certain sense of um, morality policing or moral entrepreneurship, right? Like people go out of their way to police identity in these um, moralistic ways and particularly when you're living in extremely fundamentalist spaces. Um, living in Idaho, my family was distant from their relatives. Most of the Enru clan that my father, my adoptive father comes from was in Southern California. Um, savvy scholars of political history would be able to figure out that I'm distantly related through Churchill cousins to political power in California's past. Uh, I can't say that that's influenced my life, but it's come up in odd ways um, throughout my history, and it is somehow what I'm connected to through my adoptive parents on, on his side of the family. But they moved to Idaho from Long Beach, California in the late 60s. My adoptive mother had grown up in North Tonawanda, New York, near Buffalo, in the border of Canada, another really beautiful area that I was able to live in for some time much later in my life. <clears throat> um, other than my adoptive mother's sister, who always lived near us, uh, first in Idaho, then again in Kansas, my extended family was always a distant journey to visit, so I was disconnected from extended family connections, both genetically and regionally. I, I find that I kind of value this distance now, as it allows me to go for hours, if not days, sometimes able to forget that I am tied to them as a family, like I am a discrete bubble, I disassociate all of those ties. They never felt that solid, but sometimes they don't even feel like they exist. Um, my sister is four and a half years younger than I, and I remember details from the night in December of 1978 when we drove to pick her up from a sort of adoption staging house. So <clears throat> I, I don't plan to discuss her history. Is She's determined she doesn't want to look into her past, and I respect her decisions on this matter. Um, searching isn't for every adoptee. Maybe you don't need to unpack all that, and that's just fine. Or maybe you need to wait a long time or peek at it slowly, but... I think you're, as an adoptee, always searching. It's just a matter of what you're searching for. So when my parents adopted my sister, she was no newborn like I was. My sister's adoption was two weeks or so after she had been born. I was born and adopted within hours and slept in silent shock the night I arrived. <laughs> and Perhaps there was more time in that first day or two of her life to say goodbye in some raw, atavistic way that has allowed her a peace about her birth that I've never been able to feel. Maybe she doesn't have the same kind of trauma that I experienced uh, because she wasn't taken immediately from her birth mother, or maybe she got to nurse for a period of time. I, I know that if she does decide to try and find her mother and father, I'll do what I can to listen to her story. But what I know I remember from that night in 1978, when I was still young enough to kind of understand babies and not quite old enough to fully understand adults. So, you know, I'm not a reliable narrator, but she was <clears throat> she was sitting in a ring of babies. They were sitting on a like a hand-woven rag rug, like something, a big round oval, more oval in front of a fire. The walls, I think, were wood or oak, like, or, you know, light. I mean, the walls of the place were like a tar varnished wood. And the room had a rocking chair and a couch 
or like a, maybe it was a small couch or a love seat that framed the space, but the babies were on their own. They're all on that hand-woven rug, you know, sitting in a circle. I remember listening to them all babbling to each other while my adoptive parents, I think, were signing documents at the kitchen table. And, um, it was... Yeah, it was like a big a walkway kind of... I don't know. You have to remember this was 70s, so 70s framed out space. It wasn't a doorway. It was it was like a big archway through which you could see them, but they couldn't really see me or what I was hearing. And then the woman at the house um, walked into the room with the babies <clears throat> and picked one that had been crying um, that had some hair, real blondish, and took her in to meet my adoptive parents. And she said to me, like, she's your new sister, I believe the woman said. You'll get to meet her in the car. And, and she walked past me. And so that's how I met her. She was identified in a ring of babies. So, you know, I think a lot of my understanding of how you got a baby was framed through that for most of my childhood from that point onward because that's how I experienced it, right? So my adoptive sister in her toddlerhood, when she was angry enough, was like, furious she was she she was she was unendingly crying i remember her violently recoiling from the spankings our adoptive mother would administer like i remember a wooden spoon being broken and she just was furious with the punishment i don't even remember what she'd get in trouble for i just remember like physical punishment just made it that much worse always um and that tenacity remained as she grew older. I mean, she's got an iron will. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about her psychological experiences, but I feel like her anger was always driven by this consciousness of loss. I saw her anger. I saw her, the first time I saw her as a baby, she was upset and crying. So I don't know that... that all adoptees will deal with abandonment issues, but I, witnessing how she came into my life, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for her abandonment issues, even though I feel like there have been points where I have abandoned her as well in my life um, by moving away um, from Wichita when I did. So I was part of her world until I drifted away from the family. and. My disappearance from the family was a kind of wound that she then suffered again. So I guess I didn't realize how deeply my abandonment of the family affected her personally until years later. So in many ways, I think her experience was more traumatic than my own. She has seen my adoptive parents through a much different lens and feels strongly that she was abandoned by her biological family, which factors deeply into her motive to not search, to not take a DNA test, to not look too closely at the documents from that time. Where I have had issues with my adoptive father, which have widened into a chasm between us. She fought kind of constantly with my adoptive mother. And when we were children, this conflict was starker and louder and felt unending. In the summers, I was sent away for longer and longer periods. So my abandoning her started with patterns that I didn't necessarily have control over that kept happening yearly. And after school and while being homeschooled, I would be banished to my room often for hours while I'd be waiting to get spanked or whipped with my father's leather belt when he'd get home from work from his company that he owned. So he'd work long hours and I'd sit there waiting to get spanked. Um, but she was, was also spanked like with a hard wooden spoon until that eventually got broken and then it shifted to different punishments and it always made her angrier and more distant. <clears throat> so I think over time I learned to keep attention off her because I didn't like how she screamed and I knew I could internalize after being hit. Um, so my acting out or her acting out was kind of a depressurization for each other when we were younger, my nights of uninterrupted reading were often done with her screams in the background and I would be reading to try to block it out, to, to ignore her crying. And then I know there were nights that she played while I cried and screamed in pain. And um, when I was mean to her as a kid, I 
would tell her the police would come and take her away if she couldn't stop screaming all the time. And I don't know if I wanted to be alone and maybe she needed me at her side to not feel abandoned. And so that tension continued through our childhood. Um, that warmth and openness and trust that might have been there when we were young uh, was never built because I don't know if there was, I feel like the toxic world of our childhood of corporal punishment or the kind of discipline that we were subject to it felt like being homeschooled in a all the time, like there wasn't a time that we weren't in school. We were ne- we were always on stage in our lives. There wasn't a backstage like you get at home in a private life um, when you are kept or you're in a family that has grown organically around you. <clears throat> so the lack of connection between us and our teens was because we didn't have that kind of history. We have a rugged relationship. I think hopefully it's just distant enough that neither of us is that judgmental of the other at this point. And I think there are days that I marvel at her patience, and then there are other days I worry her rage will lead through the frame of civility she brings to encounters with our now-aged adoptive parents. Um, I know her origin story. I know where she came from. She came from a foster home somewhere near Boise, Idaho, where her identity had been severed as cleanly as, you know, my own had been severed as well. Uh, She's split off by whatever bloodlines had united united to bring her into this world. I always assume she's Swedish, honestly. Not that I've ever known anything about Sweden. I've encouraged her to do a DNA test or two and see if anyone in her extended family tree shows up because I'm curious. Um, But underlying that curiosity is that unending gap that I feel myself and still feel. Uh, There's like this missing moment that drives a relentless need for disclosure. Which is probably part of the reason why I find myself needing to write and now read aloud and work through all of this stuff in this way that I'm doing. There's a need for something untoward at the heart of both of us. And I know countless of the other adoptees, online and off, who probably feel similarly. In charting why this, to use the term Nancy Verrier uses for her book, The Primal Wound, why this primal wounding is so thorough in understanding or charting out why this primal wounding is so thorough. It is the first scar. Like it's right there with cutting off the umbilical cord. The, um, uh, the, it's like splitting the nuclear family is analogous to splitting the atom that a, a bomb of some sorts, a depth charge has gone off deep in my mind. But slowly, as I came to consciousness of my intersection within the larger social superstructure, which is built on this quaking foundation of the disappearance of an identity. Um, I say that my sister doesn't search, that she hasn't tried using DNA services, or search angels, or hired private investigators to look into her past, but that isn't entirely true. Searching is a lifelong experience, and it never fully fades, and adoptees become adept at telling themselves stories about what might have been. That's another kind of searching. You're searching for those possible futures. You're always guessing. Like, one's personal inner mythology, (laughs) again, is more of a personal conspiracy theory. And you are always wondering uh, how many alternate universes are there. You you look at salient and get salacious details from relatives and strangers as best you can. You sort of defend those scraps of information for years. They're your puzzle pieces. You're waiting for a chance to plop that piece into place so that a complete historical footprint could somehow resolve, snap into focus for you. And... That adoptee's place in the world will suddenly become apparent. Uh, For my adoptive sister and I, we searched in our own way for meaning in our own lives, our own worlds. I lost 
myself in fantasy a lot as a child. Um, and she drove her interests in her own ways. Uh, and each of these methods of coping with these traumas and tragedies has to be valid because that's how we find paths to individuation for both of us and any other adoptee that survived the suicide years or the darkest parts of your life. You did that by putting the pieces together in a way that kept giving you narratives to move forward. And she and I still find ways to connect now as a treasure. I mean, like I carefully measure, but I feel even now we are both careful about letting our worlds intermingle. I remember, so I also remember that there are a lot of times that I was always split. Our, our family kept splitting along gender lines where I'd go off with my dad and she would stay home with my mom. Obviously, she's four years younger than me. She never went on any of the backpacking trips that he and I took together into the mountains. Um, before all of that started, though, I remember when I was nine, I went on a South Hills camping trip with my adoptive father, so this was, um, the South Hills were nowhere near the kind of scale that the, hmm, that the mountains to the north of us were past Sun Valley, but they were significant in their own right. Um, so because of, let me go back to it. I, I remember this camping trip most distinctly because I had this obsession with the headband that served as a tourniquet that I had to wear because of a head injury that I sustained while on this camping trip. The headband started out white because it had been ripped from his t-shirt. It was all he had with him, but it was red from blood by the time I got back to the camp. And I think in my woozy state, I, I kept thinking about the television ads I'd been seeing for Rambo, First Blood, <laughs> which um, maybe it was First Blood Part 2, but let me go back to the head injury. I remember flying through the air and kind of seeing rocks coming at my face. I remember blood in the river. My memories, and even in recalling it, are out of order. The impact in the river comes first, then the blood in the water on stones, like river stones. Uh, I, it took, I don't, I remember thinking, it's funny, I landed someplace that already had blood in it. So it took me a while, I think, during the walk back, getting back to the campsite. Hmm. It's when I probably realized it was my blood. Like, it took me a while to realize the blood I saw in the water was from me. I remember the walk back across the hills, complaining I wanted to go back back to see so I to start at the beginning I went to the South Hills on a camping trip with my father but it was there that we were meeting a rest of fam some families from the church it was going to be an overnight camping trip Friday night into Saturday and then I think everybody was going to do Sunday school uh, in town, so we're all probably coming back Saturday afternoon. Uh, so Saturday morning, first thing, um, my adopted father decided he wanted to take me on a walk through the hills, and I said, no, I want to play with my friends. And he, we got into an argument, and he ma maintained that I must walk with him. So while complaining that I wanted to go back to see my friends and play instead of walking up a hillside at dawn to see the sunrise, he took me up to this place and there was actually no trail to go. So we had to cross a river to get to where he wanted to go so he could have a better view of dawn. And we got to the river and he picked me up and threw me over the river instead of carrying me across it and instead of me landing on my feet I landed head first in the river on the other side of it. I remember um, getting back to camp it was the first time I'd seen a butterfly bandage which was used on the wound on my forehead. I still have a faint zigzag of a scar at my hairline above my right eye. Um, he had to explain to the woman who was putting the butterfly bandage on my head that he had decided to throw me across a river rather than walk across it and then i landed 
face down on the rocks. The impact had knocked me out. So, like I said, I awoke splashing and seeing my blood in the water flowing from my face. And he kept telling me how proud he was of how tough I was being. Yeah. So there are a few ways to trick my mind back into a specific memory. Music is particularly helpful, as it also helps me identify the year that something happened, as it often tracks to the time period specific songs were published or became popular. This moment is really tied to Rambo uh, running through the jungle wearing a red headband. Um, but, you know, my adoptive father, to move past that traumatic moment that I'm remembering in this text, uh, the songs that I relate to him were all songs from earlier eras, as if he were somehow time out of joint with the popular moment. He listened to big band music, the coasters, music from the early 60s, the late 50s, music that seemed uh, mechanical to me as a child as Americana, but songs by America, by Paul Simon, by Cat Stevens crept into my awareness too. Um, so Harry Chapman's Cats in the Cradle, published the year I was born, became an all-too-on-the-nose refrain that I associated with my adoptive father's long hours at his business. It was called Executive Aeromotive. The endless, sort of relentless schedule of chores that informed our evenings and weekends and the strong desire I had to play video games with him, that was never ever consummated. He never played video games with me, let alone playing video games. His idea of family time invariably involved these outdoor activities that I found profoundly stressful, if not terrifying, and physically traumatizing, uh, <laughs> scarring. <laughs> I felt as if he was punishing us for being sinners, um, even when he seemed intent on having family night or some other event meant to be entertaining. A break from the chores and homework of childhood. Um, like over the years, I've tried to identify the point I began to fear him rather than trust him and look forward to hanging out and playing with him. And something that happened with less frequency around my fourth or fifth year of life. So a few few months, like maybe two months or less. It could have been even six weeks after I'd been thrown across the river. My sister fell from his van window a few months after I'd been thrown across the river, and she also landed headfirst on the side of the road. I remember him brushing the gravel from her hair and carrying on as if nothing had happened. So um, I believe he has PTSD. is probably never treated from his time in a concentration camp when he was before uh, before he came to Idaho, compounded with actual physical injuries, I remember he almost died flying an ultralight in the Snake River Canyon at some point, crashing it um, when I was a child. So for me, some memories come with physical expressions like ticks, headaches, cold spells and time lapses, disassociative moments. I experienced vertigo when thinking about the extreme heights I'd been exposed to without warning or safety harness or seatbelt or parachute. Um, accidental trauma and injury untreated defines my current physical and emotional makeup. So trauma is a lifelong scar just as much as where my bones have been taken out of my hand and foot. But I am situated alongside his experience as well. So our lives, at least then, are resultantly interwoven. We are each other's triggers now. Our interactions are inherently toxic for each other in some ways. I worry that I'm a metaphor, like physically present, for failed masculinity or failed fertility. You know, my presence is the absence of the preferred child, the one who is not, the one who is in the universe next door, I cannot be a presence which is also a lack. I must instead not be present, and that's more comfortable in some ways. <sighs> hmm. 
I lost complete trust in my adoptive father, I think, after that moment, seeing my sister fall headfirst as I had and be treated with a near lack of concern that I couldn't comprehend. The fear of him superseded whatever bond I felt with him. Over time, that anxiety turned to a hard, instant, aggressive defense. I feel like I'm almost growling when I think of him now. My rage is bound up tightly in my stomach. I've used a lot of meditation to release most of that, but still, there's a very specific nodding of rage tied to his worldview, his expressions of ideological posturing, um, his need to always have a gun at hand, the intractable nature of his arrogance, uh, the dismissiveness he has for others' lived experiences. His blinders were mine for much, much much of my younger childhood. And I think I was in some ways a lesser person because of how he raised me and the dangers he exposed me to. I, uh, another example is the there was a night when I was completely soaked in gasoline when I was six or seven. Um, so I remember him running into the front door of the house calling for me. I remember specifically him telling my adoptive mother, I need him because he's short. So he leads me out into the field in front of the house, and he had me lodge my thumb into a hole in a gas tank beneath his sort of aged, stalled-out tractor that was um, in the middle of the field that he was tilling. This is close to dusk, nearly dark. I stood underneath the tractor as he was doing something high above me when he dropped a nut in my face, and so I jerked back away from the falling object, um, and my thumb dislodged. And so then suddenly I'm soaking my face, eyes, mouth, nose with gasoline, because I had been apparently keeping my thumb in the gas tank from keeping the gasoline from pouring out. So I remember the smell flooding my senses and screaming from the burning in my eyes. My eyes are watering as I'm reading these lines. I can still sort of feel the burning. He starts shouting at me, keep your thumb in there. I start screaming in pain, continuing to scream in pain. At this point, I think I'm rolling on the ground in the dust and the dirt and pain. Um, finally, he gets down. I think he realizes there's nothing he can do to stop the gasoline from all leaking out of his tractor at this point. He had to carry me back to the house. I'm covered in gasoline mud. Um, he hands me off to my adoptive mother. She bathes me until I stop crying in the bathtub. So, you know, it's funny. I don't have a point to this story in this, in this writing. It's just there are several points of physical trauma I, I haven't fully divulged. Like, even, um, I feel like I'm protecting myself from reliving these moments by sort of writing them down as quickly as I can. And then as I read it, as neatly and precisely and as concisely as I can, trying to allow that memory to exist because it's real, but to limit my exposure to the experience of the memory of these events. So the, there's more that I'll unpack in the future, I suppose, but other traumatic moments that I'll get to or the time I nearly fell out of an airplane uh, from the passenger seat um, because the door wasn't properly closed. The time a garage door collapsed on my fingers, the time I fell into a snowdrift with my pants around my ankles when I was five. I save these three memories, um, and in telling them, I'm performing aspects of my identity as I control it. My identity is the stories that I perform because my identity is a Narrative that only exists when it is in theatrical time, right? Like time that transpires both in the performative moment and in sequence during a reminiscence of the performance, the theatrical space. Identity in action is the core function of a storyteller. And when identity and the need to belong, to find a point of belonging, is the subtext of the story, then it is these foundational traumas beyond that first whirling scar, the navel, that defined my anxieties and behaviors from then on. And in telling these stories, I want to be free of these moments, really, free of their influence, only, only the negative aspects, of course, but free of those disruptive anxieties, free of the trance the past casts over us all when memories are lost. 
yeah, as, I, as I'm working through this book, I think a lot about how identity is relational. And my relationship with these traumas cannot be anchored in private thoughts and secrecy. I remember wondering if I had siblings, family, a brother or sister. I do. I wondered if I had a twin, like I saw in talk shows when I was home in the summer from school. Adoptees who'd reconnected and spoken out nationally, televised on Oprah, on Donahue. Uh, I, I, I fantasized about finding them, finding my siblings. Uh, I didn't know what I would do if I found them. <laughs> I find that I found them too late to establish relations, relationships that could be built on uh, experiences in the ways that I had thought I would do when I was nine years old. So I was always visually imagining myself as the forgotten or the abandoned. As a result, I remained on the edges and in the tent, in the car, whatever liminal or borderline space where I could be easily overlooked, I would read in the bathroom for hours, uh, perfecting the ever-long bowel movement, then bathe, then shower, then slow drying, all while reading a story by you know James Blish or a novel by Piers Anthony. When I read, I sought out all knowledge I felt was being denied, like if I could just find it. I read voraciously through the libraries. When the church I attended hosted speakers or showed documentaries discussing witchcraft and Satanism and contemporary music, I took notes and sought out those bands intentionally as markers for a way to get as far away as possible from where I was at, if only via metaphor. This is how I found myself listening to Bajas and Sex Pistols at a young age. I read authors rather than books. I would read all the books from a given author available in the library, then move on to the next name with a large body of work. I saw in the relationships between authors some larger consensus vision of a future, what I now understand is retrofuturism, the Gernsback continuum that William Gibson describes. A vision of a future that was much brighter, if you will, a world where individuals had much greater agency than what I could express there in my hometown, Magic Valley, at that age. I came closest to pure play, pure agency, the year before we left Idaho. My pockets were bulging with quarters, so I could always hit the arcade on my mountain bike. My bottle rocket launcher was loaded with a rocket ready to go. I always had a cigarette lit between my teeth. At 14 years old, to be out from under the adult gaze and expressing my rage in unfettered ways was cathartic. I felt lucky to have had those moments of rapture in that space, riding down Sycamore Street, dodging cars, seeing disapproval in the faces of the adults who did bother to register my presence. To miss several weeks in Idaho summer is to miss most of it. To miss the brilliance of the sky, the azure vista, the best days are around the 4th of July. It is often bitterly cold even in April, and by October there is often snow. So I have a scar from a wound I cannot remember that happened when I was very, very young. For a long time I thought it was a check mark for my adoption, not realizing that they don't track babies that way. The scars on my left hand, on the index finger, just before my second knuckle, and it is in the shape of a check mark. My adoptive mother once told me she had slammed my finger in the car door, that I'd reached for her as she closed the door, and that I bled and bled. I must have been a year old, perhaps 18 months, when this occurred. Nearly freezing to death happened four years later, and is the event I still suffer the most physical repercussions from 40 years later. When we first began building the house on the outskirts of Twin Falls, we moved in well before it was finished. After we had moved in, but before all of the plumbing was in place, the only toilet was in the basement, and the only way to the toilet was to climb down the ladder. If I had to pee, it was easier to pee by standing at the back door, which opened 10 feet above the ground. 
We were eventually to have a deck that led out into a large backyard, but at this point, the door opened into empty air. So as I went off to pee, I opened the back door, the door opened inward, and was positioned behind me. I tugged my pants below my knees as I was five and a half years old and hadn't mastered unzipping and aiming, and began to pee into the night air. Then I remember I heard the front door bell ring. I remember wanting to finish peeing. I knew it had have been my friend's family arriving, the lollies. And I didn't want them to find me peeing. But before I had a chance to stop peeing, someone opened the front door. When that door was opened, the resulting draft slammed the door I'd been perched in front of, knocking me into the night. There was a foot of snow or so on the ground into which I landed face first. When I regained consciousness, I screamed, but there was no response. I'd awoken to one of our large dogs, a red fur-coated raggedy hound covered in snow and ice, sniffing my face, and I remember her barking alongside my screaming, doing her best to draw attention to my plight. Her name was Reddy. I remember knowing that when she barked, my adoptive father would always open the back door to shout, Shut it, Reddy! And I knew our barking could get Sugar, our other dog, the smaller black dog, to join in. And eventually this did happen, so I was found because the dogs were barking alongside my screaming. I was crying and barking as best I could with the dogs. When he shouted, shut it, I think he saw me there and jumped down, lifting me back into the unfinished house. Some time later, frozen stiff, I remember being sitting next to the fireplace that had been built out of lava rock to thaw. And uh, there was possibly a mug of hot chocolate on the way. I was thawed out in that newly built living room with press board floor yet to be carpeted. Walls yet to be painted. The fireplace was really the only finished space. It was a wall of fireplace. It was all cement and lava rock, and the edges were rough enough to hurt if you scraped across it just so. You know, when I think about those events, falling into a snowbank where I was left in for five or ten minutes, maybe it was less, screaming for help, or I remember falling out of the plane, almost falling out of the plane. When I think about falling through the air and landing in the river in the South Hills, I also think about falling from the womb into a hurricane, like a whirlwind of chance and chaos. It makes me feel like I'm evil, frozen, abandoned, and distraught. So, you know, of course, confused, I seek some answer beyond the greater good, or it's for the best. These near misses where death seemed nearby, and I felt shaken to my core, still remain as vivid, sensation-inducing memories that, imprinted, never fade. These uh, <laughs> are sort of these fear factor moments, if you will, the formative moments for my anxieties, and I replay them, sensations and all, when I think about those moments. So... These memories of my fingers being crushed in the garage door, that is a much deeper, more fearsome memory, a, a visceral memory that hurts to write about when I wrote about it, in a physical sort of way, like bone ache that throbs when I think about that afternoon, or speak about it, or read aloud. Our two-car garage on the house we were building featured a garage door made of dense wood. Each segment of the door was about 14 feet wide, 2 feet tall, and 1 to 3 inches thick, depending on where you'd measure. They were likely 35 to 40 pounds each. Maybe more. Maybe more. And there were three stacks atop each other that came down on my hands. So, two below my hands. I had all my fingers, all eight of them, thumbs free, crushed between the slats. Uh, the way this happened... I'd been asked to hold the top one steady, so I'd been instructed to reach and try to align the boards, turning both palm, hands, palms upward, and sliding my fingers in just prior to that damn tractor that was holding the slats up. Bucks somehow had lurched 
backwards, the slats slammed onto my hands and then sort of pinned me in place. The pressure was immense and immediate. I remember my adoptive father struggled for some time to reposition the tractor blades back into the garage door on either side of my body. The engine lurching again as he fed it gasoline. I was between the tractor and the garage door, really unable to move, convinced I would be crushed. I remember him asking me to help. I'd been riding my bike up and down the dirt lane that led to the country road on which we lived, Aviator Lane. Something happened. Uh, A wheel wasn't bolted on properly. It slipped the track, he explained. He needed someone just my height to stand and stabilize the garage door while it was held in place by tractor blades, and he would run inside, fix the bolt, and I could go back to riding my bike. Instead, I lose the memory into a fog of pain. I still feel that threatens to stop my fingers from typing when I wrote this. I don't know what his plan was. What appeared to be his plan was never enacted, nor did he fully explain what I was meant to do prior to enlisting my aid. The instant I had agreed to help, getting off my bike, glumly crawling under the metal blades of the tractor, putting my ten-year-old hands between the wooden slats of the garage door, he tried to raise the door an inch, and the slat slipped off one of the two blades. If the door had slipped off entirely, I would have lost all my fingers. For certainly would have never written or worked for years at a computer. Um, once my hands were unpinned, I went inside and iced them. I wasn't taken to a hospital. There was no x-ray or any assessment by a trained medical professional. My adoptive father must have worried about what it would sound like if I had to explain how it came to have eight fingers nearly crushed into nothingness. I don't remember how long it took to heal. But I do remember being grateful that I could play games with a joystick without having to use my fingers. I had a joystick, an ergonomic one, where I could just hook my hand and my thumbs for the trigger button. The time I nearly fell out of the plane was four years later during the summer of 1989. I had left ninth grade a B- student, which was a problem for some reason, and I had been sent to live with my adoptive parents parents, my adoptive father's parents, for a month on their property in Kern County, California. Again, in California, the under name is indelibly twinned, twined, intertwined with the advent of civil rights, but you would never know this within the confines of contemporary downtown Bakersfield, the largest town near their rural property in one of the places we'd fly into from the Twin Falls Airport. Living for a month on their property, it was starved for stimulation, surrounded by almond trees in all directions. The only culture I got was listening to the radio while we did their garden and did landscaping around their house. At the end of that month, they paid me $100, which I spent on audio cassettes when I finally returned to Twin Falls and could bicycle the 10 miles to the Magic Valley Mall on the edge of the canyon. At the end of the month, my adoptive father flew down to pick me up in the Cessna 210. The flight from California to Twin Falls in that two-seater was uncomfortable, but I was used to flying in small planes with my adoptive father. The noise is so intense that we could only communicate by shouting, an effort so strenuous that it prevented small talk. Instead, we'd communicate to point out features in the landscape below by sort of waving hands at each other and pointing. My adoptive father once owned an aircraft maintenance facility called Executive Aeromotive on the grounds of Twin Falls Airport, and much of my life was spent in the office inside the hangar he rented to maintain aircraft. He would trade maintenance for flight time with some of his customers and leverage those relationships to coordinate family trips. We flew back from California in a Cessna, then the very next day he and I were headed to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, in a different customer's bonanza. To this day, I feel like there is no plane I like less than a bonanza. I deeply dislike the way the plane feels as it slips forward in the air. The sensation is similar to a car fishtailing ever so slightly, endlessly, throughout the entire flight. But I digress. So anyway, we return from California, and I dig around for new books to take with me the next day. And then the following morning, he and I climb into the bonanza for the flight and take off. A storm is coming in, so we rush the prep to get the plane off the ground, hurrying to get into the sky before the clouds close in, and we'd have to wait it out. 
I'm in the co-pilot seat. My adoptive father has always eschewed the safety of the seatbelt, declaring if God wanted him to die in an accident, a seatbelt won't stop him. And he rarely belts up, setting an example I once followed rigorously. Certainly, when I was 14, my unbelted seatbelt strap was a badge of honor, if you will, right alongside him, proving that I was just as tough as him. My unbelted seatbelt strap slipped between the door and the jam on my side of the plane. We did indeed lift off ahead of the thunderstorm. Idaho itself is high terrain and rugged. Uh, Twin Falls and Jerome, Idaho are on either side of the Snake River Canyon. There's a chasm that cuts across that vast sort of irrigated and lush plain, the Magic Valley. The region is fascinating to see from the air. and So, of course, I really enjoy looking out at the mountains. I knew we would soon be flying over. We could see lightning arc from the clouds and the smell of electricity in the air as we were flying. So I pushed myself up to see more clearly out the front window. And by doing so, the door at my side popped out wide and away from me. There were about 10... We were about 10,000 feet above the actual ground. But leaning on that armrest and moving was enough pressure to open the door. But the prop wash started coming into the cabin at that point. So I was unable to pull the door closed. I could see straight down and I could smell the electrified ozone permeating the airplane. Like the Cessna, the only way we could communicate was by screaming. I remember screaming, I can't close the door. Over and over. And finally, my adoptive father made the decision to turn around the plane and land. I was able to hold the door in a death grip with my right hand until we landed. And we were able to shut the door completely properly. It wasn't until we were on the ground that I realized the door had been kept from closing by the seatbelt. <sighs> that if I tried to reach for the seatbelt to clear it from the door, I would have tumbled into the void. I survived by freezing in place, <sighs> holding the door in my grasp for the full 23 minutes it took to return to the airport and land. Once the door was closed and locked tight, we, we took back off, flying into the now dark and stormy night for an eight-hour flight, landing for fuel at least once. I was so tired from the adrenaline that I fell into a deep sleep. And whenever I'd awaken, because of the um, prop, because of the tail slipping in the behind me of the plane, I'd immediately be nauseous, and so I would vomit. The sliding, sort of slipping tail of that bonanza was giving me motion sickness, and I was probably still sick with fear. So we crossed the mountains, where the stall warning alarm continued to sound which, of course, pushed me deeper into panic and paralysis. And at some point, I'd freeze and fall back asleep. We refueled in Utah. I remember drinking water and getting back into the plane, only to immediately vomit water again as soon as we reached cruising altitude, and then I passed out as we flew through the night. I remember uh, his attitude about flying at night was that we only land if we need to poop. We can pee in the air. So somehow we got to Oshkosh, 1989 air show, and I camped underneath that bonanza in a tent 
for a week. Um, while there, my adoptive mother received a call at our house in Twin Falls. She reported to him that the FAA would like him for a job they had open in Wichita, Kansas. So it was on that trip that I found out I would be moving away from Aviator Lane. When we got back, he called. In fact, that night, he called the office from a payphone at uh, the restaurant we were eating and accepted the position. When we flew back from Oshkosh, it was to pack up the house. We had only finished construction on the house about six months earlier, and I remember feeling devastated. All of that summer, all I'd wanted to do was be at home in Twin Falls, seeing my friends from school, playing games and video games and exploring the canyon. Each previous year, I'd wandered around town on bicycles with other friends, smoking cigarettes for from the point I was 12 or 13, firing off bottle rockets and playing video games, you know, gauntlet at the mall, reading Stephen King and Clive Barker books when no one was paying attention to me. I remember feeling all of that disappear and wondering if I had fallen from that plane after all. So when the move to Wichita happened, I struggled to suppress levels of anxiety and fear that compounded years, years of fears of abandonment and rejection that were central to my persona. I felt like I was leaving behind that possible twin or those biological family members I might have encountered or had encountered, as it turned out. I feel like I left behind my biological mother. I was leaving behind a mental map of reality that I understood and that I believed would someday divulge the secrets I sensed were carried by those who surrounded me as I sought to be Encyclopedia Brown to my own private conspiracy theories. To return from Oshkosh was only to pack and leave was to miss out on saying goodbye to everyone I'd befriended in school and church. I melted away in afterthought at best amidst a series of other tragedies my peers weathered. Losing track of all my relationships unmoored my already fragile identity traumas of those moments at that time. I really appreciate you listening to this. If you've listened to all of this, you... Thank you. My name is uh, Wes Andrew, Jeffrey Wes Andrew. I, I was born on April 15th, 1974 in Twin Falls, Idaho, in Magic Valley, the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center, a little before 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, by the time the sun set that day, I was living with people I'd never met before. That was a private adoption. And I've been sort of putting these puzzle pieces together ever since. Thanks for listening. Until next time.